Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of An Amber A Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I am your host, Amber Fisher, and uh, today we're going to talk about inflammation. So what I really want to go over today are reasons why inflammation might happen and the things that self-perpetuate inflammation. And then I also want to talk about some strategies for lowering inflammation. Um, and I think the combo of that will hopefully help you guys to get a better picture of why inflammation can be such a problem when it comes to hormone balance and, uh, you know, how to address it. Inflammation is a complicated issue. Um, and so there's no one size fits all solution for everyone, but I'm going to give you some of my better tips and kind of give you a direction to hopefully think about that can give you some more insight into what to do about your inflammation. So, um, this podcast is also, we're going to talk a lot about PCOS here, but the inflammation tips are really could apply to a lot of people, even people without hormonal issues, because inflammation is really a deep issue that, uh, it goes on deeper in the body than the hormone balance. You know, sometimes when we have hormone imbalance issues, what's really going on are deeper issues. And inflammation is one of those deeper issues that can contribute to, um, to influence, to hormone imbalance. So, um, I want to get out of this idea of thinking that, you know, just because, you know, if we have PCOS, we have specific tips we need to follow for our inflammation. No, if we have PCOS and we have inflammation, then we need to work on the inflammation first. And by extension, that will help with the PCOS, if that makes sense. So, uh, so we're going to talk about that today and, and where we go with that. So um, if you have PCOS, it's a great podcast for you. If you don't have PCOS, you still might want to listen um, if you think you have chronic inflammation. So uh, we'll talk about that in a minute here. But it is the first 10 minutes of the podcast. And for those who are listeners, know that I like to spend about 10 minutes talking about what's going on with me and what are some new um, changes and everything going on. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? And if you're just here for nutrition info, info you might want to skip ahead about 10 minutes. Um, eee. I just hit my desk with my knee and moved the computer. So if you're watching the YouTube version of this, that's why I went... Um, I hope the people just listening enjoyed that sound effect. Um, so speaking of, I do have a YouTube, guys. Um, I don't know if if any of you have YouTube or would prefer to actually watch the podcast rather than listen to it. I know I watch a lot of podcasts on YouTube because uh, it's sometimes fi- fun to see people's facial expressions and stuff. So I do have a YouTube uh, that you can find, and the link to that is in the show notes. Um, but, you know, catch me over there. I always upload the video version of the podcast there. So what's been going on with me? Wow, a lot. Um, a lot of changes and, uh, some good, some not so good, you know. Um, there's some things that I, I am gonna save to talk about, um, at a later date, but just some kind of housekeeping issues generally. I mean, we've been working on, um, the PCOS membership has been up and running now for about a month and that's going really well. I, uh, really, am happy with the flow that we're kind of gotten into there. And, um, you know, we're doing weekly videos on PCOS topics that go into a lot more depth and practical guidance than my podcasts can. Uh, so if you have PCOS and you're really wanting that deeper perspective and you feel like, gosh, I like the podcast, but I wish that it had more actionable steps, um, and, you know, more like talk about supplements and more an actual meal plans and things like that. That's what you would get in the PCOS membership. So it's $15 a month. I don't charge very much for it, uh, but I feel like the value of it is worth that because you get a weekly meal plan with recipes and a grocery list. That's worth $15 right there. Um, and then plus you get all this other stuff. So 
Um, so that's going well. Actually, tonight we have our uh, book club meeting. So we're going to be going over the book that we've been reading called How to Do the Work by Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist. Uh, so that's exciting. So we'll be talking about that. But as far as what's new with me, just a lot of uh, changes, a lot of you might call them growing pains. So my business has um, has grown quite a bit over the last couple of months, faster than I sort of expected for the year. And so I, I am constantly feeling like I'm just a little bit behind. I have gotten into a new schedule with all of my, you know, content creation and social media stuff. And then my membership, that's new. And so I've had to put that into the schedule. Plus, of course, I see clients one-on-one and everything, and and I want to be sharp and uh, available for them. So it's been a little, it's been a little tricky doing that. You know, I, um, I have had some not so perfect days. I've had some spacey days. Um, but you know, along with those kind of growing pains, there has been some, um, just some need to kind of take a step back and look at the places where I'm spreading myself too thin. Um, and so, you know, with that said, unfortunately, I do want to let you guys know because I know a lot of you have crossed over and started listening to my other podcast that I was doing with, um, Jen Angela, the island therapist. Uh, we have both decided to step away from that podcast, um, just too much for both of us right now. And it was kind of the natural thing to let fall by the wayside. We both have our own individual podcasts. And so, um, yeah, so it's back to just an amber a day for me, but I think in the long run, that's actually going to be a good thing because, um, you know, I won't be spreading myself so thin. So I'll be able to spend more time kind of putting more into the podcast, which is always my goal. Like my podcast is my favorite project. Um, I've been doing this since 2018 and, you know, I've taken breaks from it and come back to it. And I always come back to, to the podcast because this is a place where I feel the most kind of free to be myself and to talk about my opinions about nutrition. And, and I thank you guys for, for listening and for being here. So why don't we go ahead and get into today's topic, shall we? Let's talk inflammation. So why is inflammation important? Um, you know, chronic inflammation is this thing that so many people are dealing with. It's incredibly common in, you know, modern America, uh, and really in, in a lot of the world. Um, is very common. And it's one of the contributors. In fact, a lot of, a lot of people think it's the main contributor to the chronic disease epidemic that, that we have. You know, we've got just almost every disease that people are dying of these days is lifestyle based. Um, and so what drives that and where does that come from? Well, it really, a lot of it comes from, from chronic inflammation. And I've done podcasts on inflammation before, so I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on what inflammation is, but the easy way that I always kind of describe it is that inflammation is, is really, it, it's a double-edged sword. So it can be a good thing and you actually want the ability to produce inflammation. Um, so in acute cases, like, you know, the example I always give is if you break a bone, you know how when you break a bone, it, the area swells up and it gets red. Well, that's inflammation. And what that's doing is it's protecting that spot. Um, but the problem comes when we have this sort of low-grade systemic inflammation that's just happening all the time. Um, there's some lab work that that can be run to kind of check on this. One of the most common ones is, is uh, a marker called C-reactive protein or CRP. Easy lab to run, you know, next time you go see your doctor, maybe ask if they can add CRP to your, you know, regular labs. Um, but it can give you an idea of if there's, you know, chronic inflammation going on in your system. And, uh, if there is, then you know that there's, there's something that you maybe need to address. So what I want to talk about today is some places where inflammation comes from and, uh, what, what happens, you know, what happens to cause inflammation and keep inflammation going because, uh, there's, there's different things. It's not all from one thing or another. Um, so let's talk about that. So what the biggest one, I think the one that most people are uh, dealing with, and that is probably the most prevalent is insulin resistance. So this gets complicated when we talk about PCOS because you, you guys, a lot of you have listened to my podcast or my videos about the different types of PCOS. And one question I get all the time is, well, can you have more than one type? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so you can have inf- inflammation and insulin resistance. In fact, they often go hand in hand. The real trick is figuring out which is causing which, you know, because unfortunately with insulin resistance, um, and insulin resistance is when you, um, when you, when your cells are kind of resistant to the, um, the signal from insulin to open up. And so your body produces extra insulin to make up the difference. Um, but one of the kind of, obnoxious things about insulin resistance and inflammation is that they feed each other. So if you have insulin resistance, it causes inflammation. That excessive insulin can cause inflammation in the body, chronic inflammation. But chronic inflammation can also increase insulin resistance. Um, and I think this is a lot of the different things I'm about to talk about today are are like this. And this is one of the reasons why it gets so difficult when we do get to a state where um, we have a lot of chronic inflammation and we have insulin resistance, you know, especially in PCOS, there are kind of levels of adjustment with PCOS. And, um, when we're getting into that, that, uh, that very high insulin response, that, that high chronic inflammation, that real difficulty letting go of like body fat, um, those excessive hormones that are out of balance, it gets really, really hard to actually turn that ship around or that car around, whatever you want to say, because those things are feeding each other. Um, now there are strategies for that, and I'm going to talk about a few of them today. Um, but uh, but yeah, that they they kind of feed each other, and that's a big part of the problem. Uh, so insulin resistance is a major reason for um, for the creation of of inflammation. And how do you know which one came first? Well, that's the difficult piece. That's where a one-on-one professional would really help. But, um, you know, typically my experience has been that if we have any kind of gut issues, like a dysbiosis or a, a irritable bowel syndrome or even an autoimmune condition, that typically the insulin resistance is kind of coming from this deeper inflammation because the inflammation is just very connected to the immune system um, and the immune system is very connected to the gut. So if I see evidence of that kind of stuff, food sensitivities, food allergies, things like that, I tend to think that the insulin resistance probably kind of started from there, but it's hard to know. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. You know, you could have the genetic predisposition towards hyperinsulinemia, you know, producing excess insulin, um, but also have, you know, food allergies and food sensitivities that are feeding inflammation and, and uh, both of them could have come from different places. So it's, it's really hard to know unless, you know, you're working with one-on-one with a practitioner and they can look at your whole history. Um, cause what we kind of look at is, or what I kind of look at is I, I go backwards and I say like, well, when did these symptoms start? You know, and I kind of look at what was you, you know, what was your mother's pregnancy like? Like, what was it like for you as an infant? Um, what was your childhood like? And we go all the way through to kind of figure out, you know, hey, did you like have normal periods when you first went through puberty, but then something kind of shifted? Or did you always have abnormal periods? Have you carried, you know, extra body fat and had food allergies since you were a baby? I mean, there's so many different things that could be going on. So, but getting that full picture of your history kind of can help give you an idea of where that stuff's coming from. Okay, some other things that cause insulin, um, sorry, inflammation. So, uh, cortisol is a big one. And cortisol is your body's, one of your body's stress hormones. And like with inflammation and like with insulin, it's, it's not about it being a bad thing. It's just that it's too much of a good thing. So, um, cortisol is really important. It's, it's an energy hormone, like as much as it's a stress hormone. So you need some people who have adrenal fatigue, uh, or, you know, have low cortisol, they're miserable because they're tired all the time. Um, but when you have excesses of cortisol, um, which often happens before you get to the point where you're fatigued and exhausted, that can feed uh, inflammation. And to, of note as well, too low of cortisol can also feed inflammation through some different pathways. But for the majority of the people that I'm talking to today, you know, probably the issue that you're dealing with is higher than normal cortisol levels. Um, and so if you've got those kind of adrenal issues, if you've got issues with high cortisol, if you've got a lot of stress in your life and not just emotional stress, although that definitely plays a role, um, but, uh, but also physical stress 
And, um, you know, if you're over exercising, if you are on a super low calorie diet for a long time and you're doing a lot of fasting, if you're drinking caffeine while you're fasting, you know, these kinds of things, those can upregulate cortisol as well. And, uh, when cortisol is high, you know, it steals energy from other hormones. So, it really um, can throw a lot of things off. But one thing that it can do as well is feed this systemic inflammation. So it's important to address that stress piece um, and, uh, and, look at, and look at that. And with stress, it's not necessarily about how objectively stressful an event or a lifestyle is. It's more about your perception of the stress um, because your perception makes your reality when it comes to how much cortisol you're producing. It's all about that fight or flight mode. If you feel anxious and fight or flighty or fight, flight or freeze, you know, if you feel that way, it doesn't matter if it's something that somebody else would say, oh, that's not stressful. You know, if it's stressful to you, it's a stress. So, um, you know, that's, that's high cortisol, which can lead to, um, to inflammation issues and reasons for high cortisol vary as well. Um, there's, this is very common in PCOS. If you've had high DHEA, on, on lab work, that can be a sign that you've got some cortisol issues. You can also do a cortisol rhythm test. Uh, and a lot of times this is really useful. I, I did one of these actually before I became a nutritionist and I found it really helpful for me to kind of figure out like why I felt so wired. Um, I didn't realize, but I had really high cortisol in the morning. So I'll link below. There's, there's a simple home kit that you can do, a saliva kit. And actually, saliva is actually pretty accurate when it comes to cortisol measurements. Other things, not so accurate. But with cortisol measurements, it's actually pretty accurate because what you want to see is a rhythm. You want to see what those cortisol levels look like throughout the day. And if you do have high cortisol, of course, lifestyle plays a huge role in getting that under control. But there's some people who need extra support from supplementation or things like that. Again, this is all stuff that it's better to work on with a professional, but um, I, I think knowledge is power. So if you are just gathering data about yourself, you know that that there's a, a home kit that um, can give you a little bit more information, but that can feed inflammation as well. What's another thing that can feed inflammation? Estrogen. So um, same thing with all this other stuff. Too little estrogen can feed inflammation, but so can too high of estrogen. And commonly a problem in PCOS is something called estrogen dominance. Estrogen dominance is sometimes hard to suss out. And so it's better to work with a professional to know if you have estrogen dominance, because it's not necessarily that your estrogen has to be high and out of range. It's all about the balance of the hormones. Um, interestingly enough, like if you have high cholesterol, it can, I'm not high cholesterol. If you have high cortisol, it can actually, like I said, steal from other hormone pathways. And this can lead to that low progesterone that sometimes is an indicator in, um, in high estrogen. So, you know, it's not so much about the estrogen being like really out of range, but if you've got low progesterone, if you're not producing enough, then you don't have what you need to balance out the estrogen. So um, estrogen dominance and, you know, by extension, uh, low estrogen that you would have maybe post-menopause, those can be um, inflammatory and they can uh, cause issues with other pieces of the puzzle. So it's really important with that, you know, Obviously, if we're working on hormones and one of the main causes of hormone imbalance is this inflammation, um, then this inflammation can also be feeding the estrogen uh, dominance issues. I mean, high, like insulin resistance feeds estrogen dominance by upregulating, you know, aromatase, which is an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. So there's a lot that goes into it, and you can see how it's all kind of connected. But what we can do is we can look at addressing that inflammation piece, and then by extension, that can often help with the estrogen dominance. But you should know that, you know, these things feed on each other. So if you've got all this stuff out of whack, this is part of why things tend to like spiral and get worse and worse and kind of snowball over time. Um, it's because they, they feed each other. So high estrogen can, can uh, lead to some inflammation. Another thing, uh, excess adipose tissues. So body fat. Um, now some body fat is important and necessary, and there's certainly a range of what's healthy. Um, and, uh, I am not, you know, one of these people that's going to tell you that you need to be like, this hyper thin person to be healthy. No, um, there's a range, but 
it is true that the more excess body fat you carry, uh, the more of an inflammatory response you get. And there are some, you know, there are studies that show this, that like just a little bit of extra body fat, uh, it does produce inflammation, but it stays kind of localized. But the more that gathers and builds there, the more that localized inflammation actually kind of comes out into the rest of the body. And so um, this is one reason why, again, like with the other things, why when you have excess adipose tissue, it's like the more that you get, the harder it is to kind of get it off um, because it's feeding that inflammation cycle. Some other things, um, alcohol, you know, uh, I generally recommend that when we're working on a hormonal balance or inflammation or um, insulin resistance, even anything like that, uh, especially if we're working on inflammation, that we cut alcohol out of the diet. Yes, there are some beneficial health properties to like red wine and things like that. But honestly, my opinion on it is I don't think that the benefits outweigh the risks and I don't think that they outweigh the inflammation that's caused. There are plenty of places to get polyphenols and resveratrol and all these other beneficial components that people are always talking about being in wine. Uh, one of the, you know, some of the best places to get those are actual vegetables and fruit. Um, so and even supplementation. So I don't think that it's, it's, uh, I think that we use that whole. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. alcohol or, you know, red wine has these, you know, beneficial nutrients thing as sort of an excuse to kind of make it seem like, oh, it's, it's healthier. It's not like subtly a poison, but honestly, it kind of is. I mean, it, it is kind of a poison in a way, like it, it affects the liver um, the liver's our detoxification organ. So my, uh, my opinion on alcohol is, you know, if you're working on inflammation and you know that you have some of these issues, you should probably remove alcohol from the diet at least for a month. Um, but I, I generally recommend, you know, cutting back to the point where you're, you're not having alcohol very often. I, my, per, my personal kind of lifestyle when it comes to alcohol has been all over the place. I am a wine lover and used to be a member of a wine club and used to kind of justify it that way. So this is where I'm sort of like, oh yeah, we justify it. Um, but I came to the realization um, about the time that I was going through, you know, the cancer stuff that really alcohol was really only feeding that issue and it wasn't actually bringing anything back to me. It was actually making me more tired and exhausted and also upregulating, you know, the conversion of estrogens, which I did not need. So I have reached the point now where, you know, I will drink socially occasionally, but I usually just stick to one drink and I I usually don't have more than a drink every month or so. And I feel like that's a good balance for me and for a lot of people because you can still have some and, you know, you're going to have social occasions where you might want to sip on something and that's totally fine. But, um, but that's what I think real moderation looks like. I don't think it looks like having three glasses a week or a glass every weekend or anything like that. And that's just a personal opinion on that. You know, there are um, studies that kind of show different ranges for people of what, um, you know, what's healthy, but uh, my personal opinion on it is I think that you're better off cutting that out. Um, and I've done a podcast on alcohol and fertility. So if you're interested in that, I've actually gone into some of the research on what it says about alcohol and fertility. Um, if you're interested, Okay, another thing that can upregulate inflammation is uh, food allergies and food sensitivities. This is a big one. Um, you know, this food allergies and food sensitivities come from different places, um, but food sensitivities in particular are often signs of what we call leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Um, it's kind of this this idea that 
these larger particles of, of food, these larger proteins are not getting broken down completely before they're getting into the bloodstream. And that's causing an antibody response. And this is controversial. I mean, it's, it's very controversial. The idea that, um, you know, a lot of people think it's, it's normal to make antibodies to food and, um, that we shouldn't worry about IgG antibodies, you know, different practitioners have different opinions on that since it's still kind of like fuzzy science, but I have basically used my practice as an, as an ability to kind of like gather information about what I think works best for people. And I can tell you that I've done many, many IgG food sensitivity tests and have actually found a much bigger benefit with doing them than with not doing them. Occasionally there's something that comes up there that is, you know, you're like, "Mm, I'm not sure that this is really accurate or whatever it may be. We always take it with a grain of salt, right? But, um, but I've seen the differences from when I didn't used to run them. Um, because I used to, when I first became a nutritionist, I was like all about like, okay, only stuff that's really evidence-based and has a lot of, of evidence to back it up. And, uh, then I started seeing people doing these food sensitivity tests where they were interested in doing them. And I worked with another nutritionist who ran them and I started seeing like, wow, you know, we're getting, we get better outcomes when we run this. It's interesting. Um, and sometimes we stumble upon some like foods that you wouldn't think and it makes a difference. And then when we add them back in after they've been removed for a while, we notice, and I'm not just talking about stuff that you know, like dairy. I'm talking about things like uh, I had one woman who had severe chronic headaches and neck pain, um, from blueberries. And I kid you not, we removed the blueberries and, um, corn was one of her other issues. You know, we removed the blueberries and the corn and of course other inflammatory foods and then gave it a few months and, um, added the other kind of inflammatory foods back in. All was fine. Added, uh, finally got to the point where it was just corn and blueberries that we hadn't added back in and uh, decided to go ahead and try them. And as soon as, and we tried blueberries first, of course, because, you know, blueberries, it's a healthy food, like it shouldn't cause a problem, but no blueberries immediately caused that headache, neck pain to come back. And it was almost completely gone. So, um, and she started to notice because she took them out again and then she would experiment over time here and there. And she would notice that when she would have either one of those things that it would come back, um, so I just found that really, really interesting, you know, and it, I've had many different situations like that where there have been things that uh, you would think of as healthy foods that caused a severe antibody response um, that then correlated with symptoms. So I'm a fan of food sensitivity testing, and I do know that when we talk about IgG antibodies, you know, the way I like to explain it is that if a lot of things come up on an IgG antibody test, um, you know, that could be indicative that we have some gut health issues and that we, we maybe have intestinal permeability. You know, it's not diagnostic for that, but it can kind of give us an idea of like, wow, you've got a lot of the foods that you eat often, you're making a strong antibody response to. Um, so that's an inflammation, you know, that, that antibody response that's severe like that is inflammatory. Um, and, uh, and it can feed some of these other issues. So I, one of my big things with PCOS is let's find out if you have food sensitivities. Um, and there is, there is evidence to support like gluten and dairy, um, reductions as being helpful for, for PCOS. So, um, to me, it extends to other foods, to looking at those deeper kind of causes. We know that it's more common to have dysbiosis. It's more common to have IBS and PCOS, and those things are correlated with food allergies and food sensitivities too. So there's something going on there and we, we, we try to suss it out one-on-one, but I definitely think if you're dealing with inflammation issues that it's worth looking at potentially trying an elimination diet for a bit just to kind of see um, if any foods are maybe contributing to that inflammation. So uh, let's talk about that now. Let's talk about some things that can actually help improve inflammation because like I said, when all these things are feeding on each other and making the problem worse, it's like, well, where do I begin? You know, you're trying everything and this is a common thing that I hear or comments that I get on my videos is that I'm trying everything. I'm doing everything right. I'm eating a healthy diet and, 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 uh, I'm not seeing improvement in my symptoms or I'm not seeing any weight loss or whatever it may be. And, you know, as I've said before, weight loss is of course, not like my main thing that I 
that I care about or do. Um, however, I also validate that sometimes weight loss is an important piece of the process. You know, uh, like if you know that your weight is feeding a lot of these issues and also if it's an insecurity for you, if it's something that you're really, um, you don't feel comfortable, you don't f- have energy, you know, you're, you're having pain, things like that. I mean, it's okay to want to improve those things. And sometimes weight loss is a part of that process. So if you're trying everything and you're like, okay, it is not working. And I know that I have like weight to lose. Um, we want to look at that chronic inflammation because that's where I have found we can actually manipulate this cycle to start getting things moving in the right direction. So how do we do that? Well, First, we start by looking at an anti-inflammatory diet. And I had, I've had some people ask me, what's an anti-inflammatory diet? You know, what foods are anti-inflammatory? And I think the, the tendency in our culture is to want kind of a quick fix or to want concrete solutions. We want to hear like, blueberries are anti-inflammatory. So eat one cup of blueberries a day and then you'll get this response. Unfortunately, nutrition is, and this is why it's so hard to do nutrition research, because nutrition is one of those things that's highly dependent on the rest of the lifestyle, the genetic factors, like the environment. There's so many things that go into it that it's impossible to really isolate and say, this one nutrient does this for everybody, because it just doesn't work like that. And that's why having a diet that's very individual to you is important. Um, so, and I mean, but on that note, blueberries are an anti-inflammatory. <laughs> there actually has been some research that shows that like, I think it was a cup of blueberries a day lowers, um, lowers blood pressure by a certain percentage, which is pretty cool, you know? Um, but they, you're looking, when you're looking for anti-inflammatory, you're really looking to increase the nutrient density of your diet. So that means to increase foods that you know are concentrated with nutrition. What are the foods that are most concentrated with nutrition? Well, the biggest ones are fruits and vegetables, um, especially vegetables. Um, and by vegetables, I don't mean sweet potatoes and corn and, um, you know, uh, beans and stuff like that. Yes, those have a place. Um, but those aren't the things that are the most nutritious. You know what the most nutritious foods are? Are leafy greens. So spinach, um, collard, Swiss chard, things like that, roughage. Um, and then second to that, I think would be your cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, um, cabbage, you know, all that kind of stuff. Having a diet that's rich in those things is really important. And then on top of that, you know, adding in other vegetables that have other types of nutrients, you know, like um, garlic and uh, an onion and, and these kinds of things that have prebiotic fibers in them that help feed good bu- gut bacteria. This is where you start getting into anti-inflammatory nutrients, fruits and vegetables, bar none, like antioxidants, polyphenols, all that stuff. You're going to find that in fruits and vegetables. So you want to what's called eat the rainbow. And this is obviously more complicated than it sounds. Like it sounds great. Like, oh yes, I'm going to eat the rainbow. Every color, I'm going to have a variety of everything. This is real life, right? So I know a lot of us are kind of like, don't like vegetables or have sensory issues with vegetables or whatever it may be. Um, you just have to keep trying. You have to keep putting time and work into trying to make yourself like vegetables. There's no magic solution, but it's also definitely true that you're not destined or doomed to hate them forever. If you don't like vegetables, it's probably because you weren't raised eating them and uh, you haven't forced yourself to continue eating them to the point where you developed a taste for them. It's similar to like drinking wine or coffee. Most people don't start drinking those things and immediately like it. It takes time to build up a tolerance and a taste for them. Um, but eventually, you know, it starts to be an important part of, of your diet and you start to crave it, right? It's the same thing with, with vegetables. You'll start to crave that kind of like refresh, refreshing and boosting energy that vegetables give. Um, so eating the rainbow means looking for vegetables and fruits that cover a variety of colors. And if you just focus on that, you will actually get a lot of the nutrition that you need because different colors contain different sort of uh, chemical compounds and things, um, nutrients that are actually really beneficial for us. And we need all of them. 
Um, so maybe I'll do a podcast on that, on what eating the rainbow looks like and a little bit deeper into, into the different properties of different colors, which I, I, you know, I think is really cool. Um, there's actually a functional medicine doctor who pretty much only talks about this. She's like all about the colors and foods. Um, I'll link her below. She's interesting. You might want to follow her on Instagram to get some tips about eating the rainbow, but that's the first and the main step. There's, there's nothing like, there's no special fancy like thing that you can do that's going to replace that. Yes, there are supplements that can help. Yes, there are. Um, it's important to drink a lot of good quality water, um, but nothing's going to replace eating your veggies. So here's your, here's your weekly reminder to eat your veggies. I know every single podcast that I do, I'm like, eat your veggies. And you guys are like, can't you give us a different tip, Amber? Um, but that's the big tip. So what else? What else? Um, this is where we get into specialty diets. So an allergen-free lifestyle, um, at least in the beginning, is really helpful for lowering inflammation. So um, what am I talking about there? There are some foods that are typically allergenic or are more commonly allergenic, I should say, and more commonly inflammatory. These are things like grains, especially wheat and gluten, um, dairy, all dairy products, whey, uh, yogurts, you know, milk, cream, butter, all that stuff, um, eggs. And, uh, there's others that, that kind of rank a little bit lower. So like nuts and seeds, um, shellfish can sometimes be problems for people, beans and legumes, uh, corn, which is a grain. Uh, so there's, there's a variety of, of foods that are more likely to be inflammatory. This doesn't mean that they're inflammatory for you. Um, but they're more likely to be inflammatory. So one of the best ways to kind of get yourself moving back in the right direction is to take a month and to remove all the inflammatory, potentially inflammatory foods. Um, this is called an elimination diet. And, um, you know, I've done some, some various top like blog posts and podcasts and things on this topic, but it's really not that difficult to actually figure out what you need to do, what's difficult is sticking with it because it's it's a tough diet, especially if you're used to eating like just a regular kind of diet with foods from every food group and stuff. If you've already been like a gluten-free or you've already been um, dairy-free, it's a little bit easier. But um, there's a couple of really good kind of places to start as far as if you want like a, a, a template to go off of for an elimination diet. Um, I often recommend like the Whole30 which is uh, a pretty decent elimination diet. Um, and then, you know, sometimes for certain people, especially if they've done something like this before, but haven't seen really any results from it, I'll also recommend removing eggs from that whole 30. And that sometimes accounts for the reason why things weren't kind of doing what they were supposed to in the beginning. Um, because eggs are kind of a common hidden food sensitivity. So, I am always cautious about them. I like, that's why I like to test because I don't like to remove eggs if they're not going to be a problem because they're very helpful when you're on a diet like this for breakfast foods and stuff like that. However, if you have a sensitivity to them, you could be putting in all this work into an elimination diet and not getting the full benefit because you're eating something that you have a sensitivity to. So, you know, um, there's, there's a pros and cons thing to weigh there. And Honestly, different practitioners have different ideas of what a true elimination diet is. I mean, there's stuff that goes as low as just eating like lamb and carrots and stuff, you know, but this is what I kind of prefer is like, is like a whole 30 style because I like the emphasis on whole foods. I like the emphasis on fruits and veggies. And I like that it doesn't restrict calories or carbohydrates. It's you're it's already hard enough to do this. Um, you know, you don't need to like go extra unless you just really want to. And if you do, I kind of recommend like if you're going to restrict calories at the same time, you're going to do a whole 30 um, because you're really interested in weight loss. I would look at working with a professional to like make sure that you're doing that correctly. If you can, I know it's not always feasible, but, but it's, it's a lot of practitioners don't like to do calorie restriction while they are doing elimination protocols, because honestly, 30 days of eliminating all the common inflammatory foods is a lot of work. And so, you know, um, there are some practitioners who include rice in elimination diets. I typically don't, um, although rice is not commonly an allergenic food. 
But uh, I kind of like the Whole Foods emphasis of, of the Whole30 because I'm also thinking about insulin resistance when I think about elimination diets. And a lot of the people that I work with have hormonal issues or they have PCOS. And so, um, you know, cutting out grains, like all grains, is really helpful for getting that insulin under control. And I find that we can still eat starches um, like sweet potato and things like that and still see a lot of benefits from these types of diets in most cases, not in everybody, but in most cases, um, as long as we are being careful about the whole foods emphasis. I mean, that's, that's a really important piece. So that's a, you know, a good, decent diet. I will link their website below. They have a ton of information. You know, they have a whole thing, a whole system with that. Um, I don't think you need to like go through one of their little courses or whatever. I mean, I guess you could, if you want to, but, um, but I think that it's a, it's a decent place to start. And I know before I became a nutritionist, I did several whole thirties and I always felt like it really benefited me in the end. Um, now the, and the other one that I that I like, and this this one I usually reserve for people who have maybe more severe issues, um, particularly if there's an autoimmune disorder in the works here, like Hashimoto's or um, celiac or anything like that, um, is the uh, autoimmune paleo diet. That is another good elimination protocol. It's f- very strict, very strict, and not everybody needs to go that strict. Um, but it's a decent place to start. Um, and it also covers some things like, um, nightshades and spicy foods, which like the whole 30 wouldn't, which are sometimes a problem for people, um, especially if there's like joint pain or chronic pain. So, you know, different things to weigh out, but those are two good places to start with an elimination protocol. And so pairing that elimination protocol with a focus on anti-inflammatory nutrients. So we're removing the inflammatory nutrients, but we're also remembering to replace with anti-inflammatory nutrients. And this is key. A lot of people will do strict elimination protocols, like maybe they'll go do, they'll do keto, but they'll kind of focus on just like, they'll just eat protein, right? And they'll just eat like stuff that tastes good or that's really palatable for them. Um, but they will neglect that vegetable piece and that's where they go wrong. So you've got to add in the, the anti-inflammatory nutrients, um, to replace the stuff that you're removing. And that's when you get the most benefit. So, um, so that's, those are two things that really, really make a difference in inflammation. Honestly, I think those are the two most important things. And if you're able to do those, then, um, like I would be genuinely surprised if you don't start making progress somehow, some way with your inflammation and by extension, you know, your weight, your hormones, all that stuff. Um, difficulties with that are the consistency piece. It is very true that when you're working on food sensitivities in particular, you have to have strict compliance with these things. It's not something where you can do it on the week, during the week, and then on the weekends you can, um, you know, eat something that's inflammatory. It's, it will throw off your ability to tell what sensitivities you have and your ability to get the inflammation under control. Um, so you want to be careful about being really consistent and making sure that when you decide to do it, that you're really ready to do it. Um, you know, you may not be ready yet and that is okay too. It doesn't mean that you can't make positive changes. Like you can follow some of the principles we're talking about here. Um, but I would suggest waiting to do an elimination diet until you're really ready to fully commit to it. And then um, being really careful about the reintroduction piece. So a lot of people um, just don't give it long enough. Uh, You know, sometimes a month is not long enough. You know, um, sometimes it is, but when you're reintroducing things, you really want to do it one at a time and give it plenty of time between, um, you know, so that you can actually tell if there's an issue there. If you go and have, you know, you have a big cheat meal, like on day 31 of your whole 30, it, it kind of gets in your way of figuring out what really was going on there. Um, and so it's, it's not that it's a waste because of course eating healthy for a month is always good for you, but it is sort of a waste in the sense that like, I don't like people to constantly go on these kind of strict diets and then go off of them, go on and go off. That's not the goal. The goal is to work on the inflammation piece, work on the food sensitivity piece and get your body healthy again so that we don't have to do diets like this in the future so that we can have a very balanced diet with foods from every food group. You know, that's the goal. Um, easier said than that. So, uh, let's see what else can help. What else can help with your inflammation? So, um, 
A big thing would be healthy weight loss as well. Now, I know if one of the reasons why maybe you're listening to this podcast is you're trying everything to to have healthy weight loss and it's not working. Um, That's the cases when I would say definitely, I think it's a good idea to do an elimination protocol. And if you don't see uh, healthy weight loss during an elimination protocol, then that's when it's like, okay, we really need to work with a professional here because there's some stuff that's just deeper that, that needs addressing, or maybe you're just not seeing the full picture. Sometimes it's hard to see ourselves. Um, we need like an objective opinion to kind of get a better idea of, of what's going on. So, um, but healthy weight loss does help with inflammation. So if you are on a weight loss journey right now and you know, you're wondering, is it making a difference? Is it doing anything? Yes. As long as you are losing that weight in a healthy way, um, you know, you're focusing on nutrient density and you're not crash dieting, um, you, you're definitely making, making a difference for yourself. And, um, my, you know, my only caution is just to be careful because weight loss can be triggering, you know, and, um, and we want to make sure that you're mentally healthy during the process as well. Um, and then other things that can help with inflammation is really making sure your meals are balanced. So I kind of talked about this when we talk about, you know, people often do these kind of like elimination type protocols, like maybe keto, but that they don't add the vegetable piece. Um, that's a piece of that balancing of the meal. I also see the opposite problem too, where people, um, don't love protein. And so they will just eat like veggies and starches and things like that. And they're like, well, it's all veggies and you know, it's all healthy, whole foods. Um, the problem is that when we've got inflammation, if we have insulin resistance along with that, um, or, you know, if we have hormonal imbalances as well, it's, uh, it's really important that our meals and snacks are balanced. Um, and that we're not like upregulating our insulin swings because those can cause inflammation. So we want to make sure that with each meal, we have a, a, at least some source of protein, um, and with snacks too. And for snacks, I don't mean like you need to eat a piece of meat with your snack. Um, although there are people that sometimes that's appropriate for, but I'm talking more like, you know, if you could have some like nuts with it or, um, some nut butter like that, that gives you a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat and kind of helps slow the absorption of maybe fruit. If you're having fruit for your snack. So it's just important to, with everything that you do, make sure that there's protein, make sure that there's a little fat, make sure that there's a little, um, you know, veggie or uh, carb or starch or whatever, and just kind of be aware of the balance there. And that's really helpful for getting inflammation under control because that kind of signals to the body that like, we're safe. We don't need, we've got all the nutrients we need. We don't need to like shuffle a bunch of stuff into the, in the cells for, for fat storage. Um, it's, it's much easier to overeat and to overdo it with the insulin swings when you're not having balanced meals, the benefit of protein in your diet as well. Um, and the balance of that is that protein is very satiating. So it prevent it helps you stay full. And then, you know, you don't have as many issues with like wanting to overeat. Um, other things that are really helpful for, for insulin, um, for inflammation are stress reduction. Um, so whatever that looks like for you, uh, mindfulness based techniques, meditation, um, yoga, uh, even just like, you know, taking some time off from a very stressful job, or maybe thinking about switching jobs to something that's less stressful. I know that's not an option for everybody, but if your job is your main source of stress and there's any way that you can kind of move somewhere else, it actually can help a lot. Um, I've had a lot of clients that during the course of us working together, they weren't making progress and they had a really stressful job and then they ended up switching jobs and all of a sudden their body started to respond and they started to make progress mostly because that stress was really, really weighing them down and kind of causing this sort of chronic cortisol issue. Um, and then I think supplementally, you know, the biggest things for inflammation are, um, supplements that support the gut health. So, um, probiotics, prebiotics, those are kind of number one. And I, I'm very big on, um, recommending those, you know, probiotics are obviously tricky because not everything's right for everyone. Um, I'll link below to one of my favorite kind of daily probiotics that I like to use. Um, but prebiotics are something that are generally safe for, for everyone. 
And um, they're just like, it's just extra good fiber is really what it is that helps to feed beneficial bacteria. And there's even some evidence that just prebiotics alone can actually make a big difference in our, in our gut health and the bacteria balance in there. So, um, so if you don't know where you're going with probiotics, or you feel like you've tried probiotics before and it's like, is this doing anything for me? You might try prebiotics instead for a while. Um, I mean, I like to pair them up. Um, and I take both myself and I just feel like that's, you know, more helpful. Um, so as far as that goes, you know, if you are a client, of course, I have my shop on my website, um, the, for the, the password protected one where you can get, you know, mega spore, um, mega prebiotic, all that stuff that I, that I like to, um, to recommend. Um, I'm going to provide links below for, um, for others so that they can find products similar online. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in, in buying what I kind of recommend, you need to always make sure with any supplements that you're checking with your healthcare provider, that you're making sure that they're right for you because there are contraindications with supplements. And, you know, I get, it gets into murky waters for me as far as what I should recommend and not, because obviously there's lots of supplements I use in practice that I, I know really work and really help, but I get nervous to talk too much about supplements on podcasts or anything like that, because I just, I don't know you. Um, and I don't know your history and what medications you're on and all that. So you've got to make sure that if any supplements that you take, and this goes for anything that I recommend or anything that any other, um, nutritionist or doctor online or somebody that you found on YouTube recommends, um, always check and make sure that it's, it's okay for you. Um, so yeah, so those are, that's inflammation and how to address it briefly. And, uh, well, briefly, it's been 53 minutes, but <laughs> this is a long one, guys. Uh, but I hope that was helpful. If you have questions for the podcast, please email an amberadaypodcast at gmail.com. And um, I think that's it for today. So I hope you guys have a great week and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.